Hello, and welcome to The X-Ray. I'm Fernando Espuelas. First, let me explain what we're doing here. There are a lot of great podcasts, and there's some really great political podcasts, but we're doing something different. We're taking a different road. We're taking a fresh look at our political system. Introducing The X-Ray, a new political podcast about political power. Who wants it, who wills it, and why? A penetrating analysis of the biggest issues facing American politics. Interviews with power players, conversations with politicos, experts, and national journalists. And a special segment called X-Ray Vision, a fun exploration of the real person behind the political title. I'm your host, Fernando Espuelas, and I hope you'll join me every week on The X-Ray. For more information, check out thexray.org, and don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. The X-Ray is a project of Issue One. I'm Weston Womp, and this is Swamp Stories, presented by Issue One. If you're not paying for the product, then you are the product. This adage has applied to the offerings of technology companies that do not cost us anything, or at least we've been led to believe that they're free. In reality, the website that began connecting college students nearly 20 years ago has fundamentally changed many of our daily lives. Many of the smartest computer programmers in the world have been charged with building algorithms to engage us and to addict us with the help of data that identifies who we are, how we think, and what we like to buy. It turns out that they want us to spend as much time as possible on their platforms in order to rake in unprecedented amounts of ad revenue by delivering us, the buyers, to companies that are selling things. To do so, these companies' business models rely on inflaming our emotions and creating insular communities of people who believe the same things. Within these bubbles, they elevate conversations with the most controversial and eye-popping content. So what's the best way of keeping people glued? Division, extremism, hate. That's often the content that attracts the most likes and shares, content that sells. In the dawn of social media, the potential downside was rarely considered. These new platforms were going to bring about a new age of enlightened discourse and build new communities, and in politics, create opportunities to speak to new voters in unconventional ways. Not so much. This is episode 39. Making Outrage Addictive. In order to assess the evolving impact of technology on our democracy, it's necessary to understand how social media platforms and the algorithms that power them consume so much of our personal time. I spoke to a couple of the leading voices who are raising concerns and proposing solutions. David Jay is the chief mobilization officer at the Center for Humane Technology. We've seen tremendous innovation come out of the technology industry. And a huge amount of that innovation has been focused on what's called engagement. It's been thinking about how do we get people to spend a little bit more time on our site? How do we get them to click the button that we want them to click? How do we get them to upload the videos we want them to upload? Getting people to do what you want is, is something that is old as human history. Persuasion is as old as human history. We are a decade, little more into a unprecedented experiment in the automation of 
persuasion, where we are engaged in a race to the bottom of the brainstem, where the smartest minds of a generation all over the world are designing thousands and thousands and millions of experiments to figure out how we can get a little bit further into everyone's mind and a little bit better at getting them to do the thing that we want. Our brains have evolved slowly over millennia. Now, relatively suddenly, we're engaging information through the internet in a way that we simply aren't prepared for. We can't evolve fast enough for the algorithms. And if any of this sounds overstated, click through on the next weekly usage report on your iPhone. Check the time you've spent on social media apps. Hours of our lives are being subjected to the experiment David described. As a father of four young children, I can't help but fear that they're growing up in a world where they won't have a point of reference prior to the experiment. When it comes to the struggles that um, especially younger generations feel on social media, it's not, you know, an issue of personal will or parenting. I mean, I, I see it with my nieces and nephews. I see it with cousins. Camille Carlton is a colleague of David's at the Center for Humane Technology. I just really want to emphasize that platforms are intentionally designing products to be addictive and to keep youth on. The success that tech companies have keeping youth on their platforms is stunning. So the influencer is now the fourth highest career aspiration among elementary school students. And the thing that we sit with at the Center of Humane Technology is that these tactics that are really good at drilling into the brainstem, really good at getting people's attention and really good at shifting people's behavior, not only are they terrifying because technology that can shift what we think and how we behave is terrifying, they're terrifying because they have unintended consequences. The same tactics that get someone to look at a screen all day may undermine their ability to form meaningful relationships with their peers. They may result in a feeling of social isolation. They may result in anxiety. The same Algorithms that amplify the most compelling content may uh, make it so that cyberbullying within a school is heavily amplified and you have an effect of sort of pylons on, of, of people who are seen as vulnerable that can have really profound negative consequences. The proverbial pylon David references points to the way the algorithms prioritize certain types of content. And frankly, there's growing evidence that the algos prefer problematic content. One good example of this is research by an ally of ours named uh, Dr. Molly Crockett at Yale. And Dr. Crockett looked at what emotional triggers were likely to get someone to hit a share button, both through, I believe, research on Twitter and through research in a lab. And what she found was that there were two emotions that were kind of neck and neck for the most likely to get someone to share something. The first was a sense of sort of joy, like the equivalent of sharing a cat video. And the second was a sense of moral outrage, especially moral outrage against an outgroup. When you combine an algorithm that rewards outrage and a business model that incentivizes creators based on popular content, you have a toxic situation. If I'm posting content and what I want to do is create content that's engaging, if I post content that triggers a sense of moral outrage, especially against people who are seen as an other, that's the content that's going to get pushed to the top. So that's the content that I, as a creator, I'm going to get trained to create. If I am looking at content, then because that content that triggers a sense of moral outrage is what's amplified, increasingly the only thing I see about an out group, say a political party that I don't agree with, is content that 
may or may not be true, but that triggers my sense of outrage about them. Unfortunately, it's this social media dynamic that has fueled extremist groups in recent years. We have also seen uh, from the Wall Street Journal that 64% of extremist group joins and this was, I believe, several years ago, were due to group recommendations because the groups that were highly engaging were the groups that triggered a sense of moral outrage. There's a similar study that said that each word of moral outrage added to a tweet or words of moral outrage added to a tweet increased the rate of retweets by 17%. So there is a, um, it's not hard to imagine how a attention economy that rewards this sense of othering and outrage creates an environment in which um, finding shared understanding and operating effectively as a democracy becomes increasingly difficult. We'll be right back. If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. There's no getting around it. There's a lot to be frustrated about. So why does American democracy look the way it does? And how can we make it more responsive to the people it was formed to serve? I'm Simone Leeper, host of Democracy Decoded, a podcast where we examine our government and discuss innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. In season one, we'll take you on a journey where we delve into the nuts and bolts of our campaign finance system. We'll look at the effects of secret spending at both the federal and state level, explore where and how foreign governments are spending to attempt to influence American elections, and investigate the fight against the outsized influence wealthy special interests have on local elections. Democracy Decoded is a production of Campaign Legal Center. Find us at democracydecoded.org or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's get back to it. Nora Benavidez is a senior counsel with Free Press, where she manages the organization's efforts around platform and media accountability to defend against digital threats to democracy. With the digital age, of course, what we've seen is that there has been not just, you know, an increase in opportunity to engage with each other and the ability to express ourselves, to connect you and me or you and another person across the globe, but that there are other maligned forces behind many of these forms of communication. And so social media in particular, we have seen, has been fertile ground for the spread of disinformation, misinformation, hateful content, other junk news that is low quality journalism, and everything in between that. And what we've seen is that it isn't just that this type of content exists online, it is that this content is being fed to us for profit by social media companies. Their business model incentivizes engagement and the most controversial content is engaged with the most. We know that extremist content gets engaged six times more than non-extremist content on social media platforms. One part of the problem, Nora points out, is that we don't fully understand the business model of these giant social media companies. And given the stakes for civilization, the lack of transparency is chilling. In the mix with all of this, there is one, I think, defining feature, which is we have no transparency into these practices. We don't fully grasp what Weston's feed looks like versus Nora's feed. 
And so I'm living my reality and it's wonderful. And I love my Twitter feed. Uh, I love my Instagram feed. I have crafted those to be great places for me. I have no idea what yours look like. And so the question of how is discourse affected by the online world, it's affected in every way because our information pathways are being shaped by what social media business practices look like. And it means that maybe sometimes we are very divided. Sometimes we may not be. I'm not ready to say that in all instances, we are more divided than ever. I think that's hyperbole. But I do believe that we don't have an adequate sense of what each of us is experiencing and how that will then influence our attitudes, our voting preferences, what we think is the most pressing issue of the day. The democratization of information has taken a dark turn towards the monetization of disinformation. We've all seen disinformation flow freely on social media, in part because it evokes moral outrage which the algorithms like, and in part because the algorithm surrounds us with like-minded voices, echo chambers. The psychological and cultural ramifications of social media rewiring our brains are alarming enough. But how this affects our politics and ultimately our ability to self-govern is a gravely important consideration. The commodification of controversy, of division, of hyper-partisanship is changing our politics. As Camille Carlton explained, one encouraging trend is that tech companies are coming under increased pressure from both sides of the aisle in Washington. Thanks to a lot of groundwork by researchers and whistleblowers like Francis Haugen, there's an appetite both within Congress and on the ground. Parents are asking for it. You know, we're asking for this. So I think we feel really hopeful about that. Even legislatively, there is momentum behind solutions that will bring appropriate regulation to an industry that is fundamentally altering the lives of millions of Americans. One of the really big themes that we're seeing, I think, right now in a lot of legislation that's popping up is a call for just general transparency and understanding of the harms that tech platforms are causing. So different pieces of legislation, they're looking at just starting to ask questions and, and give resources to say, what are the harms of technology? How is social media affecting our kids? How is social media affecting our civility? And just building that into the framework. And that's where legislative frameworks like the Kids Act, and the Kids Privacy Act, which have some very solid principled approaches to addressing the challenges that we've been talking about here, especially as they impact young people. I think about things like preventing micro-target advertising from being targeted at young people. That's a really important example. They also include components like funding the FTC to be able to better build out the capacity to regulate technology going forward. Because I think having that sort of regulatory capacity where people can keep up with the speed of innovation is going to be really critical. As Nora explained to me, finding solutions to these problems is going to be complex, from education efforts to demanding accountability to the public. And of course, we're going to need more transparency. The path has to be interdisciplinary. It can't be a single sector or a single set of actors that are working on this alone. And so I often try to propose 
We need direct interventions, you know, the individual media literacy training that you or I might need to be able to gird against and identify misleading content online. We need that. We need that in our education system. We need that, of course, throughout life for older adults as well. And then we need more systemic reforms. And I typically think of those in a couple of different categories. One is what companies themselves can and should be doing. We are reaching what feels like a fever pitch of public pressure for social media and other tech companies to take action, to sort of move beyond what has been a very obvious lack of good faith in coming to the table to make reforms themselves. And then we need to have social media companies show us the receipts to actually give us transparency into what they're doing, show us what their practices are, their business models, their moderation and enforcement practices. On the next episode of Swamp Stories, we'll speak with former Congressman Carlos Curbelo, a Miami native whose Cuban-American roots and often controversial perspective within conservative circles have made him one of the most interesting voices in American politics. Thanks for listening to Swamp Stories, presented by Issue One, the country's leading political reform organization that unites Republicans, Democrats, and independents to fix our broken political system. Please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. Even better, rate and review it on iTunes to help us reach more listeners. You can find out more at swampstories.org. I'm your host, Weston Womp. A special thank you to executive producer Ethan Rome, senior producer Evan Ottenfield, producer Sydney Richards, and editor Parker Tant from parkerpodcasting.com. Swamp Stories was recorded in Tennessee, edited in Texas, and can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.